This is Space 101.1 FM, KMGP LPFM, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Yes, uh, good evening and welcome once again to Cascade of History. It's our first voyage of the new year of 2023. I'm Felix Bunnell. I'll be here for the next hour. We're live from the old master-at-arms quarters of the historic Sandpoint Naval Air Station, known better nowadays as Magnuson Park in Seattle, along the shores of historic Lake Washington, across the historic Lake Washington from historic Kirkland and historic North Seattle, in the historic uh, state of Washington, once historic Washington Territory. Um, we have a wonderful set of guests with us tonight. We have someone actually in the studio with us, which is rare. So I'm glad that I brushed my teeth tonight. Um, and uh, we're going to be talking to David Williams in just a moment. He's a well-known author and just historical man about town, plowing some of the same ground that a lot of us <laughs> plow, but doing it in a way that so much uh, panache, I think. And then we're going to hear from uh, Aaron Knutson and Daryl White, they're involved with something called the Columbia Basin Institute of Regional History. That is a um, organization north of the 49th parallel up in uh, British Columbia, and they have a new book out, and they're doing some really cool stuff with uh, digital photo preservation, digitization, and sharing. So we'll hear about that, because on the show, as longtime listeners will know who've been tuning in since September of 2022, when we first went on the air, we're focused on the old Oregon country, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia, uh, because it's it's a region unto itself, and the history sort of knows no borders, and it's fun to uh, find out what people are doing in other parts of the Northwest, um, other states, other provinces. and then. But we also stick pretty local, too, because uh, our third guest uh, coming up later in the show, we'll talk to the mayor of Sultan, Russell Wheata. Um, I was on Highway 2 yesterday, driving east, going up to Snoqualmie Pass, and noticed that uh, a pretty well-known roadside monument suffered some damage um, and uh, we're going to hear from uh, Mayor Wita about what happened and what's next for that uh, beloved roadside monument along U.S. Highway 2 in Sultan. But before we get to all of that, um, our first guest I'm welcoming to the studio now is David B. Williams. David, how's your microphone working there? Uh, seems to be working okay. All Great right. to be here, Felix. Am I not and hearing you? Hang on a second. I'm not really hearing you. Hang on a minute. You're the, you have the sparkly blue microphone. Right? I am on the sparkly blue, like myself. Say that one more time. Uh, like myself, sparkly blue. Okay, perfect. I'll, I'll edit that out of the podcast. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> See, that's the magic of live radio. Because what, what podcast would they actually hear? Would you hear someone sort of checking a microphone like that? It's, it, yeah. People might think that's unprofessional. I think it's, it's, it's part it's, of the appeal of humans trying to talk to each other. The joie de vivre. Exactly. With that panache that you bring to your work as a historian about yeah. town. Um, I also brush my teeth. I'm I noticed. I think that's really good. Uh, yeah. The studio's and, awfully small, as you yeah. can attest to. Here. And I have to say, were you headed to Stevens or Snoqualmie Pass? Did I say Stevens? You said Snoqualmie. Oh, really? I meant to say Stevens. Yeah. I guess I, I could know. have gone to Snoqualmie. But not on US 2. It'd take you a while. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you. I'm glad somebody's paying attention. <laughs> yeah, I, I am. I certainly am not. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, David B. Williams, as I've said, your name is. I, they, they do that a lot on radio shows. And, I, you know, I, I, 
I work as a professional radio person during the week. This is kind of my fun show, right? Oh, why am I here? I, well, I mean, you and I, I think we first met in person, know, it's been maybe three, four years, something like that. Yeah, something like been that. been admiring yeah. your work for a long time. Oh, thank you, you. You lead tours. You've written books about downtown Seattle. You you have a, a Substack blog. Is that what that's called? Na- uh, newsletter. Newsletter. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and I know you've written a number of books. I think books people will be very aware of, like Too High, Too Steep. Yep. Very popular book. One of the most, probably the most well, most read books in local history in the last couple decades, probably. I like to hope so. Yeah. And then uh, a year or two ago, you came out with Home Waters. Yep. That comprehensive history of cultural and natural history of Puget Sound. Yep. All, all great books. But you had a couple ones earlier. Let's talk about your earlier books, too. Let's get the whole plug out of the way. Just oh, oh, my God. Sort of so, the, the crass okay, well, commercial part of the show. Well, the first Seattle book was um, The Seattle Street Smart Naturalist, That's which right. is what the newsletter is now called. But it was a collection of essays thinking about what type of questions would a naturalist ask in an urban environment? Anything from you know, why is it so challenging to drive east-west across Seattle because of the glacial history? Why are there so many geese? What's up with the crows? Uh, what happens when you turn the water on on your spigot? And what happens to the water when, it, when you flush it down the toilet? What's that sort of unnatural water cycle? So that was nice. the first collection. And then another field I've long been interested in is geology. That's what my degree's in. And Again, always interested in the, in, in the urban environment. So what are the stories of geology in an urban place and looking specifically at the stories in buildings? What's, mm-hmm. the, what's the geology of different buildings? And I originally was interested in downtown Seattle, then did a book that looked at building stone from around the country, mm-hmm. of which quite a few of the, of the rocks are in the Seattle area, too. Right. So. Now, what I, what I really like about your work um, is the more kind of the granular stuff you do in the, in the urban environment. And then um, there's a story you and I we got together a couple of weeks ago. We went and looked at that little observatory that you had discovered on the roof of the central building at 3rd and Madison, I think. 3rd and Columbia? Columbia on one side, Madison on the other? It's somewhere downtown. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, secret. Yeah. And you, know, we, you wrote stuff about it for your newsletter, and then we talked about it on the other radio station that I actually do work for. But then you sent me some stuff about some tunnels. And that's the thing I wanted to preview tonight, because that newsletter is coming out next week. On right? Thursday. Yeah. Five days from now or however many days that is. And I think I, what I like about the way you approach your work, you sort of they, they take this comprehensive approach to identify all the blanks, all the whatever, all the certain things. And in this case, what was it that you were, what was like the, what was the, what was the quarry? What was the prey? For me, it was pedestrian tunnels. We know that there are something like a hundred tunnels in Seattle, mostly sewer tunnels. Okay. And a, quite a few transportation tunnels, you know, a variety of train tunnels. But then I was trying to think about how I was struck by the ones that are that are we can actually access in Seattle. I mean, I think many people know about the tunnel that runs from sort of starts at the convention center, goes through two union, one union, Rainier and ends up at the Rainier Tower and and for many years I thought was pretty amazing because it had this wonderful display of photographs. It had oh, yeah, yeah. the history of Seattle, it had Boeing. Unfortunately, when they rebuilt the Rainier Tower, they lost all the historical photos, but the tunnel's still there, so you can still go underground for several streets. And I just thought that was sort of fun. Does it have a name? Because I've been—I used to work in, uh, I guess, one Union Square, and I worked in the Rainier Tower. This is like 25 years ago, and I would use that tunnel occasionally. I call it the—I the name I gave it to was the Con Rain Tunnel because it goes from the Convention Center to Rainier Tower, okay. and I thought that was absolutely brilliant to take the first part of the. One word, and then the first word of another word, 
and bring them together. Because I don't think most people would think of doing that. You know, and it's the modesty, I think, that <laughs> is the mark of, of most of David B. Williams' work, too. You know, you, he doesn't, he's, he's very, uh, what, self-effacing. He doesn't really come out and say how great he thinks he is, um, which is unusual for most historians in Seattle. <laughs> yeah. I think historians in Seattle who work in media and stuff have the biggest egos of anybody, my, my present company excluded, of course, but some of the historians I know have the, the biggest egos you're ever going to. So gonna. you have the least biggest ego of everyone. Well, I don't know. I mean, I you know, of course I think that, but um, <laughs> no, as historians should have big egos because yeah. um, because it's important to think this this work is fun. Because I, I, what I like, I don't know. I, I've lived in other cities a little bit, but I feel like there's a handful of us, like maybe a dozen or so, who find a way to just make this stuff interesting and fun. It's not just you know beating us over the head with dates and with you know uh, stuff that doesn't really resonate beyond good stories. I, I like good stories. You find good stories. You tell good stories, and that, that's why it's fun to talk to you on the radio like this. Um, now, does that one question about that tunnel, though, the, the Con Rain Tunnel? Um, See, it's already catching on. It is. It really, it's amazing. Um, did it did it exist before? Or was it built specifically for that project back my, in the seventies, or was there some other reason for it to exist before that? that like, my understanding is that there may have been some other tunnels around there. That, uh, for instance, across the street to the west is the Cobb building and the south and then across the street to the south of that is another building which I'm forgetting the name of but there was a tunnel connecting those two buildings ah, okay and I think there may have been a tunnel going across the street from the Cobb building to where the Rainier tower is which used to be the William Henry White Stu Henry Stewart building. White Henry Stewart yeah. block mm -hmm. those three mm -hmm. buildings all together mm -hmm. so there may have been a tunnel there and that's part of what intrigued me Felix when I started thinking about this was what tunnels are gone or what tunnels exist that you just didn't realize you know and the one the stories that I kept coming across were stories tied to prohibition okay. that there were tunnels under under building so say from the show box to uh, the Pike Place Market, or from what had been the Washington Hotel, the new Washington Hotel, which is now the Joseph Finham, I heard that there was a tunnel going not only west across uh, 2nd Street, but also south across, I think, Stewart at, at that point. So, and I've got no, I can't prove them, but I've heard <laughs> stories that they exist. Whenever I hear a story about prohibition and bootlegging and stuff, I assume it's all apocryphal, that it's all just stories. Are there Were there actually tunnels that were that you have unrefuted proof were used for pro, prohibition, uh, to, to defy prohibition? I have not come across any, and but yeah, it's interesting. I haven't reached out to, say, Brad Holden, who's done much of the work on prohibition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, he did talk about one that he had heard about in the Chinatown ID area, and there's all sorts of rumors about tunnels there that yeah. they go for all the all the all the uh, family associations, the tongs there. But I talked to the Marie Wong, who uh, a historian who's written more about that than anybody, and she said, as far as she could tell, that was just a rumor that went with Chinatowns. Exactly what you said. It's sort of yeah. like prohibition. There's tunnel. There's rumors with Chinatowns and international district. There are rumors, but as far as she knew, there weren't any in Seattle. So in terms of other tunnels that are people that people can access but that they might not know about, are there one or two others that are sort of hidden gems that people can go and look at? And see? Yeah, there's the one that goes from uh, – that connects the county buildings downtown. Ah, so from yeah, yeah. the Goat Hill Garage, there's a tunnel that goes through underneath – I think it's what, 5th 
and then fourth and third and comes out at the county uh, courthouse building and you can just sort of wander through it's actually an ada accessible tunnel and actually says tunnel in it uh, there's also one between the columbia tower that cuts diagonally to the 800 tower which is the building just north of the seattle municipal building now wait and that's open to the public yeah and that connects the Columbia Tower to the... It's called the 800 Tower. So if you think of that intersection where you've got on the southwest corner, you've got the Columbia Tower. On the southeast corner, it's the municipal building. And then just north of that is, this, I think it's called the 800 Tower. It cuts diagonally across that intersection. But then there's also a spur that goes into the municipal tower. So all three of those buildings are connected underground. Interesting. And that's just... Uh, for ease of pedestrian passage yeah. in bad weather or something. Yeah, bad yeah, weather. yeah. It's no big. Yeah, th those ones are all accessible. Um, I always hear rumors about the. And I've heard people tell stories about the tunnels at the University of Washington. Did that? Did you? I've heard and I didn't look. I was sort okay. of more focused on downtown. Mm -hmm. um, even though one tunnel I did find, there's one down on the Boeing uh, plants down by uh, the uh, Duwamish River. There's one that goes underneath. I, I think it's the 14th. First Avenue, one of the bridges down there. It's in the map that I put together for it. But huh. so there are, and then there's a, uh, there's also one where the uh, what is it? The, what used to be Seattle Steam Plant, not the old steam, not the original one, the new one up by University and Western. Mm -hmm. There's a tunnel that goes underneath the street there. That, there's no access to it, but it's actually isn't a tunnel that exists. Um, it, it goes between the two buildings, so workers in the building can go across. Oh. And then the other tunnel that people may not be aware of is the one at 79th and Aurora. Yes, yes. And that one's been sealed for years, is, as far as I've been able to tell. Is it um, sealed with like a chain link fence, or is it actually like actually physically sealed with some kind of concrete or material uh, or something? That's, I don't, I, the one on the yeah. east side, it looks like a metal across it, so you can't even, t it, it, I mean, it even covers the stairs. Mm -hmm. The one on the west side, the stairs go down, and then there's a. I, I think there's a metal door there, or a fence, or something. But you can't. There's no access at all. Now, when I was poking around the construction site at what's now Climate Pledge Arena, probably two years ago now, over by the Vera Project, yeah, which is like one of the old Northwest rooms yeah. there, in the right by the Breezeway entrance out onto I think it's Harrison Street, maybe, or no, it's not Harrison. It's the one that's on the north side. I can't. Yeah, remember. I can't. Yeah, anyway, I know what you're about. but there's stairs there next to the Vera Project that went down to an, uh, some kind of a tunnel to, to the old Key Arena or the old Coliseum. Oh, interesting. There's still signage there as recently as two years ago that said, you know, tunnel to Key Arena. Oh. It, it, the Key Arena name had gone away, you know, a couple of years earlier. Right. But I don't know if there, there, that was uh, – I know there's another tunnel at the other side where the uh, basketball players would come in and out before games. and. So oh, that on. makes sense. So. Yeah. And I know there's still the tunnel supposedly under the counterbalance on Queen Anne where the counterbalance ran. Yeah. Supposedly that is still – uh, accessible. I mean, it or was fairly recently, not to the public, but to, to workers. And that's essentially, I mean, that's like a vault to contain yeah. that heavy weighted car that would go back and forth as a counter counterweight for, for trolley, trolley cars up going up and down, up and down, down Queen Anne. Yeah. yeah. So that one still supposedly exists. Yeah. My, my understanding, the trolley car, that heavy car is just parked down at the bottom of the tunnel. Because yeah. Why, why would they take any time to get rid of that and just rather just leave it there? Right. I mean, the other time, it's not really a tunnel, but the other spot that's downtown that's hit that you can't access um, are the bathrooms under the uh, 
The pergola. Pergola. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've tried to get into those for years. Yeah, we, I, I think we've talked to work about this. City council connections. Yeah. Tried to work city department connections, and yeah. I always, they always end up finding a way to say no to me. I don't yeah. know what that is. I was with a city council member. Uh, Who's the one who's really young looking? Looks like he's Andrew Lewis. Yeah, he yeah. was on a walk I did, and I was trying to convince him. And he said, "Oh yeah, if I can get in, I'll let you know." Like, yeah, well, um, well, if you get in, will you promise? Uh, yeah, you yeah, I will. Yeah, I'll let you tag along. Yeah, we'll do a tontine on that. Yeah. Um, for okay, for those who don't know about that, those pergola bathrooms, explain what the pergola is and what the bathrooms are. What what you know of that story? So the pergola is that metal structure that's down in Pioneer Square, and. They, I forget when, so the early 1900s, they built these very elaborate bathrooms underneath that area in that, that sort of triangle there. And where the lights are at the pergola, if you look at it, you can actually see that there's an opening. Those are the vents. Those are the air vents mm. for the bathrooms. They're marble walls. They could, I, they could handle several thousand people a day, and I think they had what a cigar room for the men and a sitting room for the women i mean it was pretty nice mm -hmm. but it's all I, it's been sealed off for a long time yeah, as far. decades i think decades you know and there's actually something similar in pioneer square in portland i noticed uh -huh. the structure a couple of years same kind of thing not as nice as the pergola but the stair you can see where the stairs are but it's all walled off you can't oh, get into it it's all sealed off yeah. so same era same kind of thing yeah. and i'm definitely and one thing i don't write about in the newsletter are the downtown the underground tunnels which are technically more area ways because that's that's what the city calls them. They're not really tunnels. I think of a tunnel as going specifically from point A to point B. These mm -hmm. are really just connections underneath the sidewalks. They don't really. In terms of what the underground tour utilizes? Yeah. 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 That makes sense. That's that mostly sense. what it is. You go, you go down into a sidewalk, underneath the sidewalk, you go into a building, you pop out someplace else. But they're not cutting across something, which, again, I think tunnel is A to B, and that's not what they are. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, this kind of history, I mean, this... I sort of know this kind of history when I see it, and I, there, not everyone understands, I think, your interest or my interest in this kind of thing. Yeah. I think <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the two or three listeners who are right. still tuned in at this point are, right. are, are the diehard people who get Thank this. Thank you. All, Thanks, most, Mom. Most, yeah. Most of the, uh, anyone else is, you know, I'm sure found another, another thing to listen to live on a Sunday night. Um, Probably that game between the uh, with the Lions and the Packers to see whether or not the Seahawks get to go to the playoffs. I think that game's underway right now. I can't give the score because that would probably be against some. I, I have no idea what what's going on. But like like I did a I was in the university district today and I took a picture of the door to the university. Oh yeah, district, I saw that. I yeah, thought, like there's this notion of a ghost door. And I I don't know if that is that such a thing, but I claim that that uh, that's a thing because you know yeah. ghost signs where the signs kind of faded out or painted yeah. over everybody knows what a ghost sign is but i think there's a lot of ghost doors and that one's got to be either the the best or the ugliest in town because it's very clearly a, a corner entrance to an old bank that right. probably dates to looks like about 1915 or something like that right and then um, there's that one at the pioneer building downtown that was closed for many years and oh, they've yeah, reopened yeah. it now that's right that's right that's right uh, but and there's I don't know if it's a ghost. I bet you that's interesting. I bet there's more because I did a uh, a newsletter about what I called zombie buildings, but ghost where they've just they took everything, but they've just left the archway there. Yeah. And there's a couple freestanding arches. There's the federal building has that has that freestanding yeah. arch. There's one up on First Hill that was the Cabrini Hospital. They left the that's arch right. and it's built into <laughs> the building. But yeah, I think the I like the idea of ghost doors. I bet there's more 
out there. Did you get much? I didn't look after whether you got much response. Um, there was spirited debate over whether an ATM had been in that. There had definitely or, been an ATM or, or for there, years. And if that had been the original use for it, which I was shocked by that part of the discussion because I thought, okay, an original, like a 1915 ATM would probably require three or four people to operate it back. There'd be two, pe- two or three people behind the actual ATM cabinet. Hey, Bob, <laughs> yeah, you got change for a 20. <laughs> you'd have to reach in and out. Yeah. It'd be like probably those vacuum tubes to send the money back to the bank. It wouldn't right. have been any more convenient for the bank, certainly. So, But you, know. you had a, didn't you? You posted a photo of the door. Somebody was sharing photos. Yeah, yeah. people were posting photos from the like, the city archives. And yeah, no, it had to be yeah, a door. It had a door. Although there's a post color postcard somebody posted where it it doesn't look like a door. It looks almost like a little puppet theater or a window. It's I, oh, I, I like that. I, that'd be even better. I'm unclear what the original use was, but it definitely right. was very early on used as a door and then as an ATM, and now it's a ghost door. Do you, so. do you remember in the 70s when you would go to a bank and if you made a deposit, you'd like get a toaster? Yeah, yeah. And maybe that's what this account. one, maybe yeah. if you made a deposit, you got a puppet, <laughs> a puppet show. show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would be pretty cool. <laughs> now you got me looking for stuff. So. The other one, and you also did another one. Didn't you do the one about um, the post about ghost trolleys in the street where there, you can still see part of the the curve of the trolley? Did you do that? Yeah, there's a space. It's up on 55th right by Calvary Cemetery. You can uh-huh. see exactly where the little trolley um, yeah. tracks used to go into the little trolley barn there for the turnaround, apparently. Right. So, but yeah. I guess my question is, why is why is why do people like you and me, and I assume the, the three or four people still tuned into the show, <laughs> why do they find that stuff interesting? I think for me, it, it it's akin to, so my background's in geology. And as a geologist, you're always looking at the layers to tell the story. There's a sediment, there's a lime, there's a limestone, a sandstone, and they go back through time. And each one tells a story to help you understand the picture of a place. And to me, these are just various historical strata, historical layers to give depth to the place where I live. It makes it more interesting. It yeah. makes it. It gives me connections and. A lot of it's just fun. I, I think yeah, it's fun I finding agree. them. And and I know through the newsletter that I get enough responses from people that it's more than three or four. I know you're joking, but I think there are. There, I think there's a lot of people who just find it more – it makes the city more engaging and gives them something to do. So, yeah. And I, I say often on this show how much I love – I mean, as, as all the problems with social media um, – I really love what Facebook does for people being able to share, like sort of this level playing field for information. I'm, and for people who've tuned into the show before, I'm repeating myself a little bit, but that example today, I was in there, you know, I was at the stoplight and I took this picture through the windshield, so it's kind of rainy, and I right. got that bank picture, a person standing in front of the door. The timing was just very lucky. Right. So I post that one picture, and then someone posted a picture from 1960 of the same building, and then someone posted a picture from 1925. I just, I love that interaction, the fact that everyone's kind of sharing in the discovery part of it. I yeah. think that's... Facebook, for that reason alone, is brilliant. If they would get rid of everything else, all the ads, right. all the other stupid political stuff, I think Facebook has a platform specifically for local history and photos. I think it's you know it's here to stay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's a great way to do it. And I think, again, I think it's just it engages people. And they want to – they've made – I think we, people like yourself and myself and others, you know, skip – we're sort of a public face of it, but there's so many other people out there yeah. who are finding the stories and sharing the stories and adding that complexity to the story. And I think what's good is we're starting to now finally see ones that aren't just, you know, to be frank, old white guys telling stories, uh, that you're starting to see the more complexity of the diversity of people. 
and culture in the area. Yeah. Those those stories are coming out and, more and more too. I think that's that yeah. just makes <clears throat> it that much better. And I love that complexity, but I also sort of I see the challenge of that complexity too, because that's you know I think people have a hard enough time understanding the kind of hagiographic, hey, um, oversimplified story of Seattle. You had the complexity. <laughs> it's very complex, you know, right. not surprisingly. But but I think it's going to take time to sort out and have that complexity really be fully understood or as, as fully understood as possible. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a good thing. So yeah, absolutely. Now, um, you skillfully plugged your newsletter a moment ago. You kind of wove it into your comments. But if you can uh, tell, where can people find you? Where do people go to read your newsletter or sign up or whatever they do? The they simplest, your- there's two ways. It's, uh, the, the let, it's through substack.com called the Street Smart Naturalist or through my website, which is geologywriter.com. I have a link on that to sign up for it. It's free. It comes out every week. And yeah, for me, it's yeah. It's every Thursday it comes out. So the next, this one coming up this Thursday will be about this. That's excellent. I would love to have you come back again sometime because this is you know we do the show every Sunday night. And it's you know there's only so much material out there, and you're a great history <laughs> oh, storyteller, you. and you're out there digging up new new story ideas. And whenever I see your stuff, I'm always impressed, and I always want to tag along on your field trip. So let's plan on doing this again sometime uh, later in the year. But uh, David B. Williams, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. Thank you, Felix. My pleasure. All right, we're going to be back in just a moment with our guests from British Columbia. But in the meantime, let me skillfully change the speed of my voice so I can find the thing I'm trying to find and find the button I want to press to play what we're going to hear now. Been thinking about a vacation trip to the Pacific Northwest? Well, those are just a few of the sounds of this big country. And at Pacific Northwest Bell, we think sounds are about the best way of communicating there is. So we've assembled a collection of typical sounds of the Pacific Northwest. Now sit back and listen. Then come look. First of all, the Northwest is a land of waters. It's uncrowded miles of ocean beaches. Swimmers' coves and explorers' caves, salmon and clams, its quiet trout pools, and the world's biggest dams. It's also golfing on cool evergreen courses and cruising the country's biggest inland waterways. It's a lot of other things, too. Hydroplane racing and... What's that? Not enough action, you say. Listen. Now. Yes, at places like Ellensburg, Pendleton, and elsewhere in Washington and Oregon, the Old West lives again as some of the nation's top riders hit the dust in that cattleman's classic, the rodeo. And when the last bronc is busted by those good guys of the West, you can drive from cattle country to the big mountain slopes where timber communities hold their own competitions in the Loggers' Carnival. Here, Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox hold center stage as loggers compete for national honors as champion tree fallers, 
climbers, log rollers, and other events as colorful as a lumberjack shirt. There's a drum full of other colorful sounds, too. Jubilees like Seattle Seafair, the Portland Rose Festival, and a dozen other high-stepping community events that help make the Pacific Northwest a summertime bandwagon. If you want to get off the beaten track a few miles in the Pacific Northwest, you can dig sounds like this. That's a dance considerably older than the Watusi, and most Indian performers don't even require a reservation. You want still more action? Okay, listen. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. You're listening to the sounds of the annual Shakespearean Festival at Ashland, Oregon. Here, in a setting as green as England's turf, thousands of visitors come to listen to words that will never die. Creeping like snail, unwillingly to school. Well, now you know the score here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh-oh, here's one we missed. That's the beginning of another brilliant symphonic performance being heard in Seattle's glittering new opera house at the Seattle Center, the world-famous site of the Seattle World's Fair. The fair's over, but the folks there have recreated its gaiety with a year-long program of musical and sports events, ranging from ballet and opera to hockey and Dixieland. Hey, what's your hurry? I see. You've listened to the sounds of the Pacific Northwest, and now you just can't wait to go look. Fine, but we had one more important sound we wanted you to hear. That's right. Don't forget to phone ahead for reservations. Yes, I like how that ends. It sort of <laughs> it surprises the listener and surprises the person uh, at the radio station playing the old audio. That's a promotional record from the phone company that was produced back around the time of the Seattle World's Fair. It was most brilliantly repurposed, though, back in 1984 by the Young Fresh Fellows, a great local band uh, who did a bunch of cool stuff back in the 1980s and are still around playing today. Um, their first record, Fabulous Sounds of the Pacific Northwest, they used snippets from that narration and interspersed that between the songs. And uh, it just it ended up making their record just incredibly distinctive as this amazing piece of uh, sort of Northwest history from 1962, but also Northwest history from 1984 in that... Uh, Scott McCoy and those guys with the Young Fresh Fellows were clever enough to really put on a, just, a, just a brilliant recording. So it's Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bunnell. We're here uh, live until 9 o'clock. We're here live every Sunday night from 8 to 9. We also, we also are a podcast. You can get us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can get us at uh, SoundCloud. A lot of uh, podcast platforms have it, um, and it usually posts within about a half hour of the show ending. So if Sitting up late Sunday night isn't your cup of tea uh, to listening to people talking about Northwest history live on the radio. You can listen to the podcast anytime you want. Um, we're on Space 101.1 FM, which is the uh, station here at Sandpoint Naval Air Station, the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station. And uh, it's, uh, it's a community station. It's all volunteer, and it's um, supported by 
contributions. Um, if you feel like making a contribution, you can go to our website, space101fm.org. There's a place you can donate there. There's information about all kinds of other programs that are on, great music programs. Um, and, uh, oh, looks like our guest is calling in right now. Stand by for one second, please. Let's see if we can get our guest on the phone here. Um, this is Felix. Hi, this is Felix. Oh, hey, I'm going to put you on hold for a second and switch you over to the mixing board. Stand by, okay? All right. So let's see here. Let's go to our first live guest of the night. And are you there, Mayor Wita? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, terrific. Thank you so much for joining us on Cascade of History. Um, you are the mayor of Sultan, Washington. Yeah, that's right. How long have you been the mayor of Sultan? been the mayor for three years. And you're Russell Wita. Did you grow up in Sultan? I did. I grew up in Sultan. Um, went to the University of Washington for my uh, bachelor's degree. And after I moved back, I uh, ran for city council and did four years on the city council. And now I'm in my, uh, going into my fourth year as mayor. That's great. Sultan's always been one of my favorite towns. I remember stopping there with my brother, uh, driving around like that 40 years ago, probably. It's grown a lot in the four decades that I've been paying attention to Sultan, but it's still it's still a pretty special place. Yeah, absolutely. We're, uh, you know, one of the things we try to focus on is even though we're growing, really trying to hold on to the things that people really like about living in Sultan, that small town feel. And uh, I think we're doing a pretty good job of that. Yeah, and that's you're in Snohomish County. You're along U.S. Highway Two, which is still it's still it's so different than Snoqualmie Pass and Interstate 90. I mean, it's it, it's like a, a kind of a difference of scale that's almost impossible to describe. The look and feel of that drive. I just we we went up skiing yesterday, and I drove up over and down the other side of the pass, and it's a completely different experience than that sort of. Um, sterile freeway experience of I-90, which isn't a bad thing if you're trying to get to Spokane in a hurry. But in terms of the scenic quality of Highway 2 as it crisscrosses with the railroad tracks for the Amtrak, you know, the Empire Builder and everything, it's just a really, it's, it's, it's always been, it's amazing how it still has those huge uh, parts of its rural appeal and that hasn't changed that much. And again, in the 40 years or so that I've been paying attention. So, um, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. You know, I've lived here my whole life and you know, the, the mountains on a clear day still still can take your breath away, no matter how long you've been. Absolutely, you know. absolutely. Well, the, the reason I reached out to you earlier today, it's not for a very happy reason, because as we were driving up there yesterday, I looked over along the side of the highway there, the south side right through town, and noticed that the big, I guess it's a, it's a, a sl- not a stump, it's a part of a tree trunk, I guess, that's been mm-hmm. on display for many years, got looked like it got damaged somehow can you kind of tell us what happened or first of all tell us what it is and then what happened to it yeah so so that's what we we call locally the raceway log so it's a it's a log round from a tree that is believed to be around a thousand years old and it was donated to the city about 40 almost 40 years ago um by the the raceway logging company a local family that uh logs in Sultan. We've got a, a rich logging history uh, in the Sky Valley. And so um, they donated that round to the city to, to put on display to represent the city's history and uh, with with logging. And so it's, it's been on display there for about 40 years. It's 
it's I mean I've I've seen similar things like that in other logging communities around Washington and around the Northwest actually, but this one I don't recall one that's so close to the road and that seems to be in such great condition. Um, do this, does the city actually pay to, to to build that shed that's around it and everything, or is that sort of a, a private group that puts that together? Yeah, so that was there was a structure originally built um, over it, and that was showing its age, and uh, it also coincided with a project the city had been working on to um, put up some new signs. So you will have seen when you drove by yesterday, drove through town that at Travelers Park the sign there and then the entrance sign to Sultan um, all have the, the same style. And that was designed by someone locally. And so over the last few years, we've been replacing our park signs with that same style um, with materials that are milled here locally. Uh-huh. And so those structures that you see over the, the log and then the Freedom Rock just in the same park a little bit down the road, um, those were done just a, uh, two or three years ago. As part of kind of creating this consistent theme uh, within our park. Got it. So that structure is actually relatively new. Okay. So then something bad happened on December 30th, I think it was. Mm. Yeah. A, a driver uh, was traveling eastbound on Highway 2, and, uh, you know, traffic wasn't moving that fast. There was actually a lot of folks uh, heading heading up the mountain that day, and unfortunately the, the driver had a medical emergency and and came off the road, and the car hit the log. It, it it missed the structure, and when you look at the pictures and where it hit, it's just amazing that they, they didn't hit the structure, but they hit the log and, and knocked it off of the, the off of its base. Uh, the driver was okay. Hmm. Uh, deputies actually uh, drove them home uh, that night. So the driver ended up okay, um, and so then we, after making sure that that was taken care of, started looking at the the log and kind of assessing the damage there. Uh-huh. Was the was the car badly damaged? Uh, from from what I saw, and I just saw pictures, um, it looked like there was some damage on the front of the car, but um, didn't look like it was totaled. Okay, I I just can't imagine what the sound must have been. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm laughing because I'm glad nobody was hurt, but the sound of a car hitting that thing and then it rolling over. It rolled about looks like about I don't know ten or fifteen feet to the east, maybe. Yeah, it, 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 it's probably closer to five or ten feet, you okay. know, just it kind of rolled off of its face and then and then sat, you know, because it's not perfectly round, so yeah. it didn't go, you know, rolling down the park or anything. So my helpful my helpful suggestion was, you know, rather than try to move it back into place, just lift up the shed and move the shed over 10 or 15 feet. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, that's, so that's kind of the next step, you know, we're, um, we're working with insurance companies, so, you know, we're working through that whole process to figure out what the what the cost and and um, process will be to move it but um, between the the city's insurance and then the, the driver's insurance um, the the cost for relocating um, the the log where it's supposed to be should yeah. be covered because I imagine there's there's a concrete pad underneath the shed isn't there or something yeah yeah yeah, okay. there is. yeah that makes sense. And so I, I imagine the answer to this is no, but is there any kind of a timeline for when you'll try to write the log and move it back into place? Well, you know, we're hoping, like I said, you know, working for insurance companies so don't know exactly what that timeline is going to look yeah. like, but um, we're hoping that sometime before the spring uh, we're able to get it 
to get it moved back. Yeah. Obviously, that's going to depend, too, on the kind of equipment we've got to get in there, how soft is the ground with all the rain. So there will be a, a lot of those factors that, that play in, but um, shouldn't shouldn't be too terribly long before we've got it back. Now, what sort of effect has this had on the community? What what are people saying about this? How do people feel about this? Well, obviously, it's a, it's a shock. You know, one of the first calls that, that we made afterward was to the, the family uh, that donated the log. Uh, actually, Brad Racer of the Racer family works for the city of Salt oh. uh, in public work. And so we've got a we've got a good connection with the family that we maintain. And so, you know, we called to let them know, hey, this happened, but we're going to we're going to get it taken care of. Um, but, you know, one of the things that comes out of, uh, you know, a, a disaster, it's a relatively minor disaster. Yeah. Usually we're talking, you know, floods and, and recently the fire. But, yeah. you know, for something like this, um, it it really kind of brings community together. But also um, a lot of people are learning about the history of the log that they never might have taken the time to learn before because it, it was something sudden, it was surprising, and it obviously out of place. And so uh, as people look for information on what happened to it, they're learning, you know, that it's a thousand years old and when it was donated and the family that donated it. So, you know, kind of those opportunities that come out of a, a disaster like that is, um, it's great to see, even though it's not, not great circumstances that it happened. Yeah, because it's, you know, it is one of those things. I drive up Highway 2, not not all the time, but, you know, enough times a year where there's a certain kind of, um, you know, a, a, a stuff looks the same. <laughs> stuff doesn't change that yeah. much. But we came around the corner and it's like, wait, that's the, the, the you know, the little plaque on it is upside down. <laughs> it rolled away from its rolled away from its little covering and everything. So it was definitely clear that something, something bad had happened. So, um, does Sultan have a history museum? We do. So we've got a historic, the historical society uh, runs a, a historical museum on the second floor of our post office. Oh, wow. So the the city owns the post office building. Uh, the United States Postal Service runs the the first floor as, as the Sultan Post Office, but the upstairs of that is our historical museum, oh. and they've got a ton of stuff up there. It's it's really uh, it's awesome to go up and and see and. Uh, they are open on Saturdays. Uh, it's all run completely by volunteers. And so they've got that open for visitors on Saturdays. And we're actually, the city is going to be um, putting some money into that building. This year, uh, we're putting in a, a chairlift so that folks can um, to add accessibility upstairs oh, wow. um, in the museum. And then also doing some HVAC work and some other stuff uh, to the building. So. You know, that's one of the other things we're hoping is as we do this work and, and invest in the building to kind of get the word out to folks about the museum because there's a lot of really great stuff to see up there. That's really cool. So, what, I mean, what is Sultan's secret? I mean, it seems like, I mean, you're the mayor and you care about local history. That's not the case of every city that I know in the Northwest. Yeah, well, the, I think really for me it's, it's continuing to celebrate that history and make sure people are aware, too. Our Sultan Shindig that happens every year. It's our our annual festival with you know food and vendors and music and rides and all that good stuff. Um, has a, a logging show and the logging show has been going on for many years, decades, uh, where uh, 
competitors come out and compete in blogging competitions. Huh. And it's a it's a really fun way to bring the community together, um, but also be able to talk about the history of salt and the history of the valley in a competitive sense. And so people who maybe um, don't have uh, as much of an interest in you know, history or logging, but it's really exciting to watch. We've got the spar poles that go way up in the air that they climb up and down, um, the giant chainsaws. So it it draws people in and gives them that opportunity to then learn about, you know, this is the, the history of the valley. That's cool. Now, when is the shindig? So the shindig's the second weekend in July. Second weekend in July. And oh, that's cool. So uh, this year, you know, COVID stopped us from doing big community events for a couple of years. And so 2022 was our, our shindig reboot, um, bringing people back. And, and it was one of the best logging shows. We, You know, attendance um, was up. I was there uh, for the opening ceremonies on the uh, for the finals, and every seat was full. Um, a lot of people came down, and and we're we're excited to see the shindig and the logging show back. That's really cool. That's great. Now, with the the couple things about Sultan that I I can't remember for meeting it. The where does the name of the town actually come from? So Sultan was the um, the the English. Uh, translation or version of uh, Chief de Sultan, who was a Native American chief uh, from Sultan. And so the, when settlers came, we had a, a local Native American tribe, and um, Sultan John, as he was you know referred to then, but Chief de Sultan uh, was the, the leader there. So it was actually the river, if, if I'm remember, remembering correctly, the river was named uh, Sultan first, and then when they incorporated the town, they named it after the river. That's pretty cool. And the reason that Sultan is there in that particular spot is why exactly? So it, when the gold rush actually brought brought folks out this um, to the valley before logging was the, the prominent industry, and so access to the rivers um, was the, the main reason for where they initially located. Okay. Because the Sultan's right at the confluence of the Sultan River um, and the Skykomish River. See, it's amazing because that, that, that stretch of towns along that part of Highway 2, that where the, there's such a great cluster of a variety of names, you know, the Index and Sultan and Startup. <laughs> And I mean, I'm forgetting some of the really good. There's a there's just a crazy the crazy mixture of the diversity of names there is is fabulous. And each little community has its own kind of character as you're you know coming into it from the east or the west through the highway. It's like oh yeah here's and then here's Zeke's you know it's sort of a it's just a, it's a really amazing stretch of highway that for for some reason or other just is unlike any other part of the state that I'm that I'm aware of. Yeah, it's it's great and you know really rich history and and we've got a, a statue of Chief Sultan uh, that. We actually just recent uh, two years ago restored. Um, we we built a pedestrian bridge uh, across the Sultan River, uh, in that was finished in 2020. 2020, um, but we had we've had a 14 foot statue of Chief Sultan that was in River Park that had to be moved um, as part of the project, and so um, we had some local volunteers that helped do some restoration while it was moved. A community member let us use his shop to store him while the restoration was happening. 
And then when we put him back, we actually moved him up higher uh, on the near the platform of the pedestrian bridge, where he's really prominent along the highway yeah. and out of the floodwater. Yeah, because yeah. down there in, in River Park, when the rivers would come up, it was actually kind of folks that have been around for a while would would see would gauge how how bad it was flooding based on whether it was up to the chief's knees or his waist or that kind of thing. So wow. we we don't have that reference point anymore, but he is he's out of the flood water and, and a lot more prominent. We've got a little plaque there so that, you know, folks can read about him and, and how the statue got there. And we're actually we've we've got some longer term plans to put some more educational information on that uh, the landing for the pedestrian bridge. History of the chief, history of the town, um you know, life cycle of the salmon, because we've got a, a, obviously Washington State as a whole has a, a rich um, tradition with salmon, but uh, the Sultan River, we've got the, the migration of salmon up and down the river as well. So we've got some plans for some more education around the history there, too. That's terrific. Yeah, the statue's in a very prominent location. I was looking at it yesterday when we were driving through, and that pedestrian bridge makes a huge difference, because that, that highway bridge is so narrow, that old highway yeah. bridge. It's crazy <laughs> narrow. Um, that, how old is that statue? Uh, you're testing me. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to say around 20 years that the okay. statue's been there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and is there, I mean, is there competition between like Sultan and other communities along highway two? Is there sort of a kind of a competition to see who can, who can do things better, who can track more people for events or for, you know, to, to move and settle there? Is it sort of a, is there, I mean, do you have your counterparts in Startup and Index and, uh, and Monroe who you kind of like have kind of a friendly competition with? <laughs> well, you know, from time to time, I think there is, but, uh, you know, the, the Sultan's part of the Sky Valley Chamber of Commerce and a lot of our community events are partnerships between the cities and, and the chamber. And so the, the Sky Valley Chamber actually encompasses Sultan all the way up to Stevens Pass. Okay. And so, um, you know, I serve on the chamber board. The mayor of Sky Comish serves on the board with us. He's actually our president this year. So, you know, we, we really support everyone and, and uh, you know, try to promote each other's activities. So um, I'd say there's probably actually more, more collaboration and trying to help each other than there is competition. That's great. That's that's very cool. Now, where's the best place to get a, a cup of coffee in Sultan? So we've got a lot of great places for for coffee. If you're looking to sit down and and read a book, Kiss the Sky Books, right on Main Street. Oh yeah, is yeah, a great place to go. Okay. Uh, Jim Tinney, the owner there, has done just amazing work with that building. Uh, when he originally got the building, I think six or seven years ago, it had been vacant and he he tore that thing down to the studs and completely redid it he's got a huge collection of books in there and great coffee so you know if you want to walk down main street and enjoy a book enjoy coffee kiss the sky is a great place to stop okay what about a place to get like a hot turkey sandwich with like mashed potatoes and gravy well sultan bakery has got you know great food right there on the highway um and their sandwiches it's like three meals their sandwiches are huge. <laughs> so, um, you know, Sult- Sultan Bakery is a great place to stop for that. Very cool. Well, Mayor Russell uh, Wita of Sultan, Washington, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. It's sad about the uh, the log getting knocked off its base there, but it sounds like you guys have it, you know, you have it under control in terms of getting the resources necessary to put it all back together. And 
Um, are you, do you think there might be some kind of a dedication ceremony or kind of a celebration when it's put back in place and kind of celebrate the fact that it's been restored and everything, or is that just going to be kind of done under the cover of darkness? <laughs> well, you know, we'll see. We'll probably, you know, we'll, we'll talk to the family, um, the Raisler family, and see if, if they want to do something, and uh, I'm sure we'd be happy to do that if, if they wanted it. Yeah, that would be great. All right, uh, Mayor Russell Wita of Sultan, thank you for joining us on Cascade of History, and have a good rest of your evening. You too. Thanks, Felix. Bye-bye. That was great. That's really good news to hear that they're on top of getting that log put back into place. That's, uh, it, was, it was so jarring to be driving up the highway and look over and see, you know, it was so obviously out of place. And we do have pictures. Um, we have some photographs at the um, Cascade of History Facebook page. That's pretty much where we put all of our different uh, uh, initiatives or stuff we're trying to collect pictures of or share information about stuff going on in Washington and Idaho and Oregon and British Columbia. Um, sign up for that. If you are on Facebook, it's a it's an easy way to stay in touch and see about uh, topics for upcoming shows and su- to suggest topics for upcoming shows. We started this program back in September of last year. Um, we had about a two-week break over the holidays. We're going into a little bit of a break now for January for a couple weeks. But um, we have a huge, huge plans for the rest of the year for all kinds of programs. Um, we're going to do more of the live remotes like we did. I think the rerun or the encore, excuse me, the encore presentation last week might have been the episode that we recorded live or it was actually it was it was broadcast live from the Burgermaster at University Village, which we learned the, the bad news that night that the Burgermaster is likely shutting down um, as early as the end of next month. So February 28th. I need to reach out to Alex Jensen, the CEO of Burgermaster, because we're planning on doing a special program uh, right here on Space 101.1 FM, um, a live program for the final night at Burgermaster, whenever that happens, whether it's the end of February or the end of March. We'll give you plenty of advance notice for that because we want people to come out to that event. We'll we'll do two or three hours maybe and get uh, people to share their memories and talk to employees, talk to people who have treated that Burgermaster, like a kind of uh, ancillary city hall um, and a community gathering spot for much of the area around University Village and Laurelhurst and that part of, uh, of Seattle. And then we have some other places we want to do live remotes from um, in, in Seattle and in other parts of the Northwest. Not all the time, maybe, maybe once a month, maybe once every other month, something like that. And if you did hear that Burgermaster show, and I can't remember if I talked about this on the air or not, but... Um, and listening back to the tape, I could hear that the, the background sound was really strange. Like when I was talking or when a guest was talking, in between their words, you'd hear the clattering of forks and knives and plates and things. But if somebody paused, like I did just there, the sound would just drop way out. And I was able to figure out that the mixing board I was using, which I had never used for a live remote before, um, has something called a noise gate in it, which I didn't know how to turn off. I didn't know it was even there. But I know how to turn it off now because the whole point of doing a live remote at Burgermaster was to have all that background noise of the, you know, the, the French fries cooking and people ordering and all that sort of stuff. So the next live remote, whether it's at Burgermaster or some other location, it will have much better ambient noise in the background. Um, so stay tuned for information about that and definitely uh, go to the Facebook page. And if you feel like contributing to um, Space 101.1 FM, the community radio station, the, the website, space101fm.org, has ways you can do that. 
Um, it's this is a great little station. It's a it's a the mightiest little station in the Northwest, as far as I'm concerned. There's a terrific team of volunteers here, who've been putting on fabulous programs for for several years. I'm just really happy to be a part of it. Uh, I really enjoyed the last couple months of 2022, getting this program off the ground and kind of uh, finding our feel, finding kind of a feel for what works with the number of guests and how many topics we can cover in a given night. And uh, really look forward to keeping doing this throughout 2023. Um, if you have show ideas, a uh, couple ways to reach us, that Facebook page, as I mentioned, or you can send email to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. Um, we love getting ideas from listeners, especially if you're out and around other parts of the Northwest. And one thing I really want to do, um, we have a wonderful live correspondent, um, Ken Zick, who we send out to uh, whenever a bowling alley is closing or a skating rink or a movie theater or a restaurant or something. Around the Seattle area, we send Ken out. I want to find people in Spokane, in Boise, in Portland, in Eugene, in Vancouver, British Columbia, in Victoria, British Columbia, who can report live from places like that. Or that place doesn't even have to be threatened with, with closure or anything. If there's cool local businesses or cool local places where you could call in on a Sunday night and talk to me and talk to our listeners on the phone, I would love to hear from you. Just go to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. Send that email, cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. Let me know your name, where you live. Um, if you have some ideas for things you want to cover on the show or talk about on the show, I would love to talk to you because it's this, um, this, this attempt to do this sort of region-wide history thing. It's, it's, it, it's perhaps foolish, but I love the Northwest. I love hearing about little towns that I know, like Sultan, like we just had the wonderful conversation with the mayor of Sultan, but I also love other parts like Idaho and Oregon and British Columbia. So send me an email, cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. Um, we've got a couple of uh, encore shows coming up the next few weeks. We'll be back later in the month with new programs live here on Space 101.1 FM. Until we do meet again, I'm Felix Bunnell, and this is Cascade of History, and I'm going to talk slowly so I can find the place where I know which button to press on the little music player so I can play the outro for the show. So have a good night, everyone. Uh, we'll see you next time here on Space 101.1 FM with Felix Bunnell and Cascade of History. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it, that's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bunnell. Yeah.